Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The psychology of humor, what makes things funny and what makes us laugh, are the topics of this Archive edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Dr. Bill Fry, a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Stanford University. I spoke with Dr. Fry from his home in Nevada County, California, on February 8th, 1992, when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. I asked him to begin by telling us about the psychology of humor. Welcome to Government Politics and Ideas, Bill. Thank you very much. I, I'm not sure which one of those three to uh, hang on to, but uh, probably the ideas is the uh, best uh, topic for me. Well, let's go with it. <laughs> All right, fine. Great. Uh, uh, shall I start out? I'd love to uh, take this fl- uh, platform, if I may, but I learned never to uh, uh, preempt a uh, lawyer, so uh, I'm a little hesitant. Uh, uh, no, be my guest. And uh, let's tell our listeners that we are conducting this interview by telephone uh, from Bill's home in Nevada City on um, February 28, 1992. All right. Uh, the... Uh, the subject that you're uh, suggesting here, the psychology of humor, is an extremely large one. And it's large from its uh, inherent nature, and it's also large from the fact that of all the different kind of scientists who've studied uh, humor and mirth, I use the, humor is the subject. That's what is presented to people to uh, arouse their reactions of mirth. Mirth I, is the word I use to indicate the emotion that we experience when we have uh, been exposed to and have appreciated humor. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of uh, different kinds of behavior that are associated with our mirth. Mirthful laughter, giggling, chuckling, ha-haing, guffawing, uh, smiling, grinning, you know, there's many words that are used, actually, to de- designate this uh, mirthful behavior. But, uh, at any rate, uh, there's the uh, fact that, uh, that this issue of humor and mirth have been studied uh probably most extensively by psychologists in the years uh, past. Uh, I do have to qualify that by saying that um, it's not all that much. Uh, There are a lot of other subjects as far as psychological functioning uh, are concerned, mostly the unpleasant and painful and and disagreeable ones uh, that have been studied a lot more uh, extensively than humor. But uh, of the different scientific approaches to humor, psychology is the Maybe we could talk for a moment about um, how the psychology of humor fits in between employees and employers, or husbands and wives, or children and parents, or lawyers and judges. Uh, yes. Now we're talking about uh, we're talking about conflict resolution a lot of times, uh, and there. Uh, let me let me start out introduce this subject by uh, picking up uh, some a theme on with regard to these unpleasant emotions which have received a lot of uh, psychological attention over the years. And there, there are three major, uh, I mean major in terms of the frequency that we experience them and the part they play in our lives, uh, major negative emotions. And they are anger, fear, and depression. And uh, all three of them have uh, very detrimental negative uh, impacts on our lives. Fear, that's perfectly obvious. I don't know anybody who 
at you know re- has reached the age of three or four years old who hasn't felt fear. Uh, and you know, the longer you go through life, why, and the more times you spend in an automobile on the highway, why, the more experiences of fear you <laughs> go through in your life. But anyway, fear is—I uh, don't have to explain what fear is. Everybody knows what that is. Uh, anger, and what I mean by the kind of anger, which is of this negative nature, is not just the, simply the kind of irritations that we feel from day to day, but this intense rage that. Uh, come, that periodically comes over a person, like, you know, maybe three or four times a year, something like that. But it, it can be very detrimental from the standpoint of the health impact. Uh, there's a body of information that's been acquired. Um, these are uh, research, uh, demographic kind of studies, uh, case reports. That There are three or four articles in the medical literature uh, indicating the close association between sudden intense anger and suffering a heart attack. Uh, This is a statistical uh, association that's been observed there. So, you know, if you're a victim of sudden intense anger, uh, you might be exposing yourself, putting yourself in a position of jeopardy with regard to your uh, heart. Depression is another feature. That's more subtle. Uh, depression tends to creep up on people, and uh, once it gets to a certain level, I'm not talking about a blue mood or a melancholy state. I'm talking about deep depression, uh, really that require that should be uh, attended to by a professional. And when that uh, kind of depression enters in the picture, you not only are uh, emotionally or psychologically bad off, but there are certain impacts or effects on your body, too, that uh, make you susceptible to uh, serious disease conditions. Uh, there were about two or three years ago, two years ago it was, a little bit over. At any rate, uh, there were several studies that were reported just about the same time, different um, journals and uh, other uh, professional uh, sources, but um, indicating a high association of death. Uh, uh, during the year, a second year after an individual had uh, lost a spouse, even we're talking about older people, uh, an older couple, and one of the couple, the husband or the wife dies, more frequently the husband because of the survival level. But at any rate, uh, then during the next year or so, the surviving spouse, uh, this is again a statistical observation, um, the, the numbers prove it, uh, that this surviving spouse becomes susceptible, becomes uh, the victim of uh, some kind of fatal con- disease condition. Well, Bill, what's funny about all this, or how does it fit into humor? Is that uh, humor, with the exception of the more severe degrees of depression, humor is a uh, very appropriate and very uh, effective antidote or preventative. Uh, say, for instance, your kid comes home and he's had the family car out for the evening and he's very chagrined and very uh, very hesitant and he tells you that through some stupid thing that happened uh, he's smashed, he's totaled the car, the family car is wrecked and you know the <laughs> the uh, unfortunately common reaction or easy reaction would be to experience one of these episodes of sudden rage. Now you can prevent yourself from becoming not only the victim of a smashed up car but maybe the victim of a heart attack by being able to see the humor of the situation. There's some humor somewhere, even if it's only your big red face that's <laughs> inflamed with fury. <laughs> and you know, then you can laugh at whatever the humor element is, and the, uh, the anger disappears. It just vanishes. 
Let me ask you about that uh, when you talk about sudden rage or sudden, sudden anger related to heart attacks. Um, are you indicating that if someone expresses their rage and anger and carries on for a while is a much greater risk than someone who just turns red in the face and starts to laugh at it? Uh, it yeah, it depends on what you know the, the sequence of, of events is. If you can, if you can, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, if you can uh, inhibit, if you can abort that, if you can abort the anger quickly before it begins to churn the, you know, it begins to stir the physiologic causes the vascular spasm, the intense uh, increase in blood pressure, you know, all these different unpleasant and undesirable things that happen in the body uh, with this kind of anger. And uh, these, are, these are the ones that are more obvious. There's, there's probably the more important uh, things, the physiologic things that happen with um, uh, this intense anger are they're probably hormonal and we don't know we don't have the information as to what particular hormones involved uh it may be a certain type of of adrenaline uh what they call a catecholamine uh but we we don't have that that the the physiology of uh, the um, the physiologic studies haven't uh, defined that as yet but interestingly enough on the other hand um there's with laughter there's also an increase in heart rate and uh, an increase in blood pressure and you'd think that there would be as much of a jeopardy with uh, laughter uh, intense laughter sometimes very intense laughter as there is with this intense rage not the case there are very very few cases of any kind of heart attack uh, associated with laughter despite the fact that the heart rate can go up to twice the normal rate for whatever period of time you're laughing do these issues uh, connect then to conflict resolution, or are you laying a foundation to explain that? Uh, you know, if you have a group of people, say, just to simplify it, you have two people that are uh, involved in a discussion over a subject, and one becomes uh, angry with the other uh, about the way in which it's, uh, the discussion is moving, or they're attempting to resolve some kind of a difference of opinion, and the anger is going to be uh, a, a serious block to the development of a consensual uh, uh, position. Uh, you're not going to be able to, if, if one party or both parties are uh, furious with each other, uh, you're not going to be able to, uh, um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I, I'm not sure just how specific in terms of the political side of, the, of your uh, uh, your uh, uh, orientation here. Well, go for it. Tell us uh, what you think. Give us some specific examples, and anyone who has a differing opinion will have access to the airwaves. Yeah, well, the Near East peace negotiations are a, a good example. Here, you know, two sides that are really uh, angry with each other, and you know, there's history of uh, reasons for anger, but they're not going to reach a constructive uh, resolution of the issue as long as they remain angry. Uh, that anger in his, it closes down our minds. It, it uh, diminishes the, uh, the imagination. It, uh, it blocks uh, attempts to find resolution, to find compromise. Uh, it's, a, it's a very negative impact in our lives, in addition to the physiologic effects that are of negative nature. And uh, frankly, it would seem to me that it would be very uh, helpful to have 
um, some assistance, be nice to have. Um, well, let me let me go back a moment. Uh, I there, as you know, there's a uh, a National Peace Foundation. Uh, the concept for a peace foundation was initiated a number of years ago uh, to establish a an academy. Uh, the argument was that there are three military academies, um, Army, Navy, and Air Force academies, and that uh, this is for war making, and that we should also have an academy to educate people and uh, orient them uh, in the arts of peacemaking. And this, I thought it was a, a really wonderful idea, and uh, got into correspondence with the people in Washington and D.C. who were um, involved at that point in uh, a, um, they were in a found, they were in a, not a foundation, association uh, that was, uh, was developed to promote the um, uh, understanding of the purposes of what this academy might, uh, the uh, potential effects that it could uh, attain. Um, and uh, I, I was in correspondence with these people and I actually uh, made a trip to Washington, um, maybe middle 70s or something like, I forget exactly when it was, but it was quite a while ago, and um, met some of the principals and uh, had some nice uh, discussions. Later joined the organization and have been a member of the, uh, the Peace Academy Foundation, um, which has subsequently been mandated by the, uh, by the government, by the uh, uh, Congress and Senate. And um, then uh, I thought it would be helpful, um, I suggested that um, that uh, humor be a subject that would be um, uh, involved, brought into their curriculum, to their their uh, concepts, uh, that the humor would be an important part of uh, the uh, program that they would be uh, devising uh, for promotion of conflict resolution education around the country, uh, not just in the academy, you see, but presenting um, classes and, and workshops in other parts of the country. So how did they react to that? Well, uh, they sort of lost sight of it <laughs> after a while. But uh, the interesting thing is that just a couple of uh, months ago, I got one of the newsletters from the organization and indicating that uh, there is now a uh, sort of grassroots education kind of program which has been devised and has uh, been developed to um, help uh, people with understanding of uh, how to deal with uh, conflict in a constructive way, and that uh, so I, I wrote another letter in this regard and got a very nice and a very responsive letter back. So I think maybe there's an opening now. The problem we have, uh, Barry, with uh, humor is that there's a long history of um, well, both. Uh, prejudice against uh, humor and also a tendency to f trivialize humor. Before we get into those topics, uh, I'd like to pause for a minute and tell our listeners that you're listening to Government Politics and Ideas. This is Barry Vogel. Our guest this week is Dr. William Fry, a re retired professor of psychiatry from Stanford University, and we're talking about his extensive 40-year period in the history of research uh, and in the area of humor. 
Um, Bill, let's talk a little bit about the history of prejudice against humor. But before we get too far, too close to the end of our program, I'd like uh, to hear a little bit more about the conflict resolution. And I do want to move in to the area of uh, irony and perhaps incongruities and uh, Coco the gorilla and uh, her cognition of humor. That's a lot in uh, the remaining uh, 12 minutes we have left, but let's go for it. Okay, uh, just one thing. I, I'm not retired. I'm retreaded. So, yeah, <laughs> I, the, the, the retiring uh, part has to do just simply with my academic career. I'm an emeritus now. But at any rate, uh, but I keep up my research work and the writing and so forth and so on. It, it, research is a continuing activity. But uh, getting back to the issue of uh, prejudice and trivialization, uh, there have been actual periods in history when uh, humor was uh, forbidden uh, in a culture. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, in the 1300s in France, there was a period of a couple of decades that humor was a punishable crime. Uh, there were also in the 1600s in England, uh, during the time of uh, Cromwell's uh, what did he, protectorate, uh, humor again, public demonstrations, public uh, presentations of humor were uh, against the law. Let me interrupt. It was against the law when I was in grammar school in Los Angeles 40 years ago. <laughs> well, that's probably because your teacher had the impression that humor is, quote, um, impolite, and laughter is, quote, vulgar. <laughs> I think that, that it's important to point out that uh, children who are in kindergarten laugh about uh, 100 times a day, and kids who are in high school laugh about 15 times a day, and uh, the kids who make the jokes are not rewarded for it. They're sent to the principal's office, and it's an interesting perspective on our educational process. You're, you're right. And, and think back to the teachers that you liked, that you, you know, that you learned something from. <laughs> yeah, they're the ones that we laugh with. That's right, yeah. They're the ones that had a good sense of humor and, and didn't inhibit it. I got a letter from a lady in, in Canada a number of years back, uh, 10 years or so ago. At any rate, she wrote that she had been raised, being Canadian, she was raised in what she called the English style. And the English style was that, I was saying a moment ago, that... Uh, that humor is implied and laughter is vulgar. She didn't learn until she was in her 20s that this was completely wrong and that uh, uh, it's a perfectly natural thing to feel the impulses of mirth within you. Uh, I should say, we're all born with the potentiality for developing a sense of humor. That's, uh, that's a natural, inherited quality uh, as a result of our being human beings. And everybody does have a sense of humor of one sort or another. And everybody's sense of humor is a little bit different from everybody else's, although they're very broad overlaps. But the difference in the humor is because of the fact that the content of humor in our lives is developed as a result of the experiences in life that we have. And everybody's life is a little different than everybody else's. But everybody's got a sense of humor. I've had a lot of people over the years uh, say, you know, how can I develop a sense of humor? And I, they don't, you don't have to develop a sense of humor. It's there. All you have to do is to avoid the kind of uh, prejudiced uh, proscriptions against humor, uh, the inhibitions that you were taught uh, in, in one way or another over the, during previous, primarily during childhood, as you point out. Um, and then people 
also they wonder, you know, how can I uh, retrieve or, or get back my sense of humor? It's, I've lost my sense of humor. And that's probably not really the case. You know, the sense of humor is there. It's just that it is inhibited or diminished for a short period of time, relatively short period of time, because of some personal tragedy or some uh, serious concern that is oppressing or burdensome at that particular uh, time in life. But the sense of humor is there, and it'll revive when things have been uh, worked out. Maybe we could move to a discussion of Coco the gorilla and a, and a neighboring species and talk about your observations of her use of humor. Well, uh, what, what happened to me, uh, I, I write books about humor, and um, I first book that I wrote, and I uh, injudiciously commented that we'll never know whether other creatures have a sense of humor or not because we can't communicate with them. And I, that's, this is before uh, the projects of teaching chimpanzees and gorillas uh, the uh, American uh, Indian Sign Language, uh, which are, I mean, those are projects which are continuing to be active at the present time. But in those days, why? They, I, there, I think one or two of them was, had already been started, but I didn't really know much about it at that time. So anyway, a couple of months after my book was published, a psychologist called a uh, man I'd never met before, but who, seemed, who soon became a very good one. But uh, he phoned and he said, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, I want to introduce you to my t- three uh, chimpanzee friends. Uh, he was doing some research and had these chimpanzees in his uh, laboratory. That sounds too clinic, too scientific. It wasn't. It really was a big open kennel. He had them in, you know, uh, and they were living there. And he was observing them, as uh, what it boiled down to. And uh, one of the things that he was observing and would get involved in was tickling. They love to be tickled, and so he brought me over and introduced me and indicated to them somehow or other that I was a person who would tickle them. And <laughs> that was terrible. They used to chase me around this kennel, getting trying to get me to tickle them. And I'll tell you, a three-year-old chimpanzee is a pretty strong creature. But they love to be tickled, and when they get tickled, that what happens is they get this respiratory behavior, which is very similar to human laughter. It's expiratory. It's spasmodic. Uh, it, I'll give you a little imitation of it. And then it goes on while they're being tickled. This is great. We have a psychiatrist who tickles chimpanzees and laughs like one. Yeah, right. Well, the interesting thing is that the gorillas do the same thing. Uh, I'm sure that most of your audience has had some knowledge of uh, Dr. Suhu, who was a uh, electrical engineer, a uh, very successful businessman, who ended, uh, after he transferred out of his business life, he became a patron of the uh, San Francisco Zoo and donated a very large number of extremely expensive animals to the zoo, including a, uh, most of the uh, gorillas, who, or anyway, a large number of the gorillas who are, real, are still living there at the San Francisco Zoo, and you know they have a very fine uh, gorilla colony. At any rate, uh, I have some wonderful pictures of him tickling some of the gorillas, and also his being tickled back by one of the gorillas, actually. Uh, they have the same, they enjoy being tickled, and they also have the same kind of uh, respiratory activity that's very similar to human laughter. Uh, the thing about uh, Coco the gorilla, Coco is probably the most uh, 
sophisticated, most advanced uh, educated of the primates. Um, uh, she and Dr. Patterson, who is the psychologist who has uh, been, um, I, she's not been working, they've been living together for years, ever since Coco was a little nine-month-old infant. Uh, Dr. Patterson became her mother and took care of her. Her mother died and took care of her and uh, has raised her and has taught her uh, sign language. It's really, it's a wonderful uh, and a very inspiring story. Uh, there's a foundation, the Gorilla Foundation in Woodside, California. Is, if anybody wants to join and support uh, this, um, this uh, activity, this way of life, really, is what it is well down to. Let's point out that I'll give the address of the Gorilla Foundation at the end of this program. That'd be so great. If, yeah, that's very that's great. Yeah, I have it here so we can um, if anyone wants to get a pencil. But Bill, we really only have about two minutes left, so if maybe you could tell us the high points of the cocoa. Well, it um, seems that she has a sense of humor, which is of a, a less sophisticated nature than, say, an uh, adult human. Uh, but it's probably at the level of uh, a nine, ten, eleven-year-old uh, human being. Like the rest of us. <laughs> okay. All right. She, she loves punning and uh, wordplay, and uh, she also uh, likes to tease in a humorous fashion, and uh, she enjoys practical jokes. So there you got it. Um, can In the few remaining uh, minute and a half or so, maybe you could uh, talk about the incongruities of, of what she was doing, if that fits in. Well, incongruity is, is an essential quality in humor. It's one of the main features of humor. It's, it's related to the discovery element of humor. You see, uh, with, with our experiences in humor, we are actually expanding our minds. Uh, we are... Uh, enriching our uh, scope of understanding and our minds are growing because each uh, moment of humor is when we have realized something that we hadn't realized or understood before or if we had known about it, we hadn't really appreciated it, the uh, significance of it. In other words, it's a growth experience. Uh, that's the key that is involved in uh, the uh, mental stimulation that comes about with uh, humor. And that, of course, is very important for conflict resolution, too, because, you know, it opens up your mind into a creative avenue. It encourages creativity of thinking and uh, orientation. Well, Dr. Bill Fry, uh, I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to get into the area more of conflict resolution, and perhaps we can talk again in the future. But I want to thank you very much for being with us here on Government Politics and Ideas. It's my pleasure. Dr. Bill Fry is a professor emeritus of psychiatry from Stanford University. He lives in rural Nevada County in the gold country on the western slopes of the Sierras in California. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, 
Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.